You are listening to the APSI Podcast, the association of people supporting employment first, with your host, Chris Davies. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Minnesota APSI Podcast. If you believe it, you can achieve it. Uh, we're so delighted that you've joined us here today. It, we are recording this uh, podcast today on April 7th. It's a Friday. The sun is shining. I'm being told it's going to be 50 degrees, so uh, good good things are ahead. And certainly good things are ahead here for the next you know 30 to 40 minutes or so uh, with our guest, uh, Elise Knopf. I just met Elise 10 minutes ago, and I am really excited to learn more about her, uh, and we're very happy to have her uh, with us today. Elise is a real rehabilitation area manager for vocational rehabilitation with the team of uh, the St. Paul Deaf and Hard of Hearing, and uh, that is under DEED. So we're going to learn a lot more uh, from Elise as we go on, uh, but I wanted to, to welcome all of our, our audience out there and invite you into our, our podcast room with us here today. Some of you may actually be watching this for the very first time or watching a Minnesota APSI podcast for the very first time. And if you are, a uh, very special welcome. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about, you know, who we are. Uh, so APSI, uh, the Association for People Supporting Employment First, is a national organization. It's the only national membership organization that is solely dedicated to integrated competitive employment for all, one person, one job at a time. Uh, we believe that that uh, the avenue out of isolation and poverty is indeed employment. We are Minnesota APSI, as I stated, and we are, are sort of a division, you could say. We're a state chapter. Uh, there's about 41 state chapters right now. And we've been in existence for quite a while and have been doing this podcast now for three years. Uh, this is our third season, and I believe this is our fourth episode. Isn't that right, Dana? Dana's our producer there. Yep, he's giving me the number four. So uh, it is our fourth episode uh, this year. And again, uh, we have Elise Knopf uh, uh, with us today. And very excited to learn, you know, more about Elise. I, I, I won't lie. I did a little research this morning, and uh, Elise has done some really uh, fascinating things. And uh, I'm sure you're going to get to hear about some of those. But you know, first, simply, let's just start. Uh, you know, let our audience know. Oh, wait. Excuse me, Elise. Uh, before we go go into that, uh, we did want to provide. Uh, some visual descriptions of ourselves, uh, and uh, I'll go ahead and start if that's okay, Elise. Um, I am uh, a white male, uh, balding, uh, have a, a, a red beard, and today I'm wearing a, a blue vest as I want to do uh, with a checkered shirt and blue jeans. Elise. Good morning. It's really nice to be here today. <clears throat> I'm looking forward to chatting with you, Chris, about my experiences and my journey. Um, I am a white woman. I have wavy brown hair, maybe light brown or dirty blonde. I don't know. Who knows? Um, I have brown glasses. 
and silver earrings. And then I'm wearing a black shirt and a black blazer over that. And green jeans. All right, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so uh, let's let's get into it. Let's get into our conversation. Uh, first, we just love to learn a little bit more about your your journey. You know, your professional uh, and personal background. Sure. Uh, I was writing last night, trying to decide where to start. So, obviously, you know, start where I came from. So, and I am from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, my parents and my sister are all hearing, and they found out that I was deaf when I was two and a half. My mother was calling my name, Elise, 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 and I didn't respond. Uh, and so they brought me in, and they, an audiologist tested me, and we found out that I have severe to profound hearing loss, deafness. So right away, they fitted me with hearing aids, and they sent me to an oral school for the deaf. Um, and that's where I learned how to speak and to lip read and to use auditory devices. So that's kind of my beginnings. My family are avid readers, um, and so that I really believe that my ability to pick up language was from that. I was mainstreamed starting in second grade, um, all the way to getting my BA degree, actually, from a small college in Iowa. Um, and then, of course, you remember back in the 1970s and 80s, this was pre-IDEA. Uh, so there were no laws there to support my education or my journey with regard to that. So I was just really in survival mode. I did a lot of reading. I tried to do one-on-ones with friends and teachers and just grabbed as much opportunity as I could. Uh, my family, of course, is very supportive, uh, and I can't thank them enough uh, for giving me the tools, the necessary tools and techniques to, to be successful. Along the way, uh, my work experience, I mean, again, I can't say enough how important it is to have a network. All of my work experiences came from family friends that we knew. So that's where I started. Okay, great. And um, and so uh, after after high school, uh, you uh, you went to school in Iowa, right, for your your BA degree. Yes. Yep, I went to a small college called Cornell College, and that was in Mount Vernon, Iowa. And I got my BA in history. Actually, it's sort of funny because before I got my BA in history, I had actually thought about becoming a PE teacher. I love sports, always have, grew up playing volleyball, softball, golf, did track, um, just a lot of different sports. So I thought, oh, I could be a PE teacher, and that would be great. I also have a love of history, though, and that is what led me. I, well, I majored in that, um, and then I minored in women's studies. And so that perspective gave me a shift. College really opens your eyes, you know. 
um, you know, thinking about the possibility of being a PE teacher versus a history teacher. And I thought maybe there was more opportunity with being a history teacher. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of fascinating because uh, you and I went to school around the same time. You know, I'm, I'm just just looking at some of the the years you're t- you're talking about. And in my twenties, I thought I wanted to be a, a PE teacher as well. Uh, and and then I realized I, I enjoy working with adults more than than children. I love children. Don't get me wrong, but uh, yeah. So so I ended up going other directions. Uh, and after college, I understand you did something uh, quite historical. You were you were part of something that uh, is literally a huge part of uh, the disability uh, rights, um, you know, uh, histor- history. And uh, I'd love for you to tell us about that. I'd yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Um, so when I was in college at Cornell. I uh, had a variety of work experiences, including waitressing, uh, working at an ice cream shop, um, supporting my mom in her catering business. Um, and then I also worked for Blue Cross Blue Shield, and I was helping them write a manual on accommodations for employees. Um, so a friend of mine of the family said, why not apply for an internship in D.C.? I had never thought of that. So I went ahead and I applied, and it was through um, Senator, State Senator Tom Harkin in uh, Iowa's office. So I applied for the internship, and I was accepted. Um, so that was between my junior and senior year of college um, during the summer. Uh, so I was there for about eight weeks, and I just had a phenomenal experience um, that experience really led me to wanting to know more about politics, legislation, policies. So after I graduated with my BA, I applied, well, I got in contact with Senator Harkin and I asked him, do you have any positions available? And he said, yes, in the mailroom. So I thought, okay. So I figured I knew, you know, I have to get my foot in the door, right? I mean, that's what's important. So um, so I was sorting mail, um, did that for about three or four months, um, and I was just so happy to be in D.C. Let me tell you, you know, D.C. in my 20s, that was fun. Well, then I got promoted to uh, a data entry, and then pretty soon after that, the senator asked me if I wouldn't mind becoming a legislative correspondent, an L.C., And he had a subcommittee for disability policy. And that subcommittee, that is where ADA was written. So, yes, it was just a phenomenal experience. And how I got there was, you know, amazing to me. During that time, I met so many wonderful people in the disability rights movement. Um, And at that time, I couldn't really appreciate it either, you know, because I was in my 20s. You really don't fully understand the impact of something like that. ADA, for me, um, the impact that it had on me, you know, and the future generations and providing opportunity that I did not have, um, especially uh, with access, accommodations, just for the world in general. It was a really beautiful experience. Yeah. Wow. Um 
I have kind of chills just hearing you talk about it. I, I don't think I've ever sat across from somebody that actually was part. You were, you were actually part of, of of writing the ADA. You know, in a way, you had a you had an integral role in the in that. And uh, well. I wouldn't say that writing ADA, but we, I delivered, you know, we delivered documents to representatives' offices and senators' offices um, to make sure that the papers were prepared, um, ready for the hearings. So I did most of the behind the scenes. Um, but I was able to see how uh, Bobby, who was the director, wrote the ADA. He just had to meet with so many people and had to handle so many different perspectives. Um, and, you know, he had to work with people with disabilities to get their perspectives as well, you know, to see what they wanted included into the law and how to manage that kind of huge bill. There were so many moving parts. So just to see that and then understand better how our government works... You know, back in in those days, Democrats, Republicans, they really did get along. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yes. more, yeah. more so than yeah. today, anyway. I don't think we have enough time for you to tell us how our government works at this. At the, <laughs> at this oh no, no, at this stage. But right. So I I realize you you didn't write the ADA, but you were part of the team that that was writing it, and so you had a role role in that uh, in that process. And it is fascinating to think about. All the details that go into actually writing something like that, and all the interviews and the research, you know, that would one have have to go through. So, but what an amazing experience you had, uh, you know, to be part of of that history. Uh, it, it's fascinating. And would you say that 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 sort of launched you into your, you know, the next uh, phase of your employment journey that led you to to where you are today? Yes, I would say it had a huge role in my journey. From there, um, you know, having a BA degree, I couldn't really move up anymore. So that's when I decided to apply to graduate school at Gallaudet University. And that was also the start of developing my deaf identity. Um, That's where I learned American Sign Language at the age of 25. So once I started learning ASL... And figuring out my identity as a deaf person, then I realized as I started looking back, I had a VR counselor who told me that my aptitude was that I had an aptitude being involved in social services, working with people, um, and I had an aptitude for language as well, and understanding written language. So that policy work and the legislative work really taught me the power of a voice, the power of speaking out and letting people know, advocating for what it is that you believe is right. So at Gallaudet, I got my master's in rehabilitation counseling. I graduated with my master's, but I did not work in VR until many years later, actually, um, I really started VR in 2012, but I graduated in 1994, um, so I didn't get into VR until 2012. I, I just I had a lot of other experiences in between 
um, there was a poem written by Robert Frost. You know, the road not taken, right? It's it, that's just constantly my life. Yeah. Yeah. So your your journey definitely hasn't been linear, but sometimes those are the the best journeys to be on. You, you've experienced, you know, a lot, and so what you you say you started working uh, with with voc rehabilitation in 2012 what was sort of the the aha moment if you will that that got you into voc voc rehab yeah so prior to my position with vr i was working for under a federal grant um and i was housed at st paul college and it was called the midwest Center for Post-Secondary Outreach, MCPO. And that became PEPNET, Post-Secondary Education Program Networking. So that position, I was the director for the Midwest region. I was responsible for 13 states. Um, So I was supervising people all over in the region who provided technical assistance for colleges and universities Um, and accommodations for students who were deaf or hard of hearing. That position required me to work remotely. And also, I worked with a lot of VR programs in those 13 states as well. So I was learning about each state and, you know, that they really have some of their own unique nuances um, and funding. And not every state has the same funding for VR. And then in 2012, my position really was eliminated because there was another university that was awarded the grant. So, you know, it was soft money. You know what that's all about. And at that time, the state coordinator for the deaf position was open with VR, and someone encouraged me to apply. So I went ahead, I applied, I was hired, um, and so I was in VR for the first time since I had graduated. And you had uh, with your degree, so you were you were using uh, not that you weren't using your degree prior to 2012, but uh, then you found yourself, you know, in that. So it sounds like you were doing uh, uh, remote work before we all started doing remote work. Totally, yes. I really I have to tell you. So 2007 to 2012, um, we used several video platforms. Um, so, yeah, really, we were doing it before it became cool. Right. <laughs> you know, there were there were many challenges, though, at that time. But I think it did really help me, uh, you know, when the pandemic hit, I was able to make that shift pretty easily. And I think also, you know, with my community, the deaf, hard of hearing community, we use video phones, we use FaceTime, and we have been for a while and had been for a while. So it wasn't that difficult for a deaf, hard of hearing people to make that shift. Um, but it helped me also to be a better manager because I had to teach my team pretty quickly, you know, how to adapt to that. So we also had to work with participants that we serve uh, to let them know that we are still around, we're still here. Yeah, so you've talked a little bit about, you know, some of the challenges and accommodations. I'd, I'd love to, to dive into that uh, a little bit further. You know, what 
what do you see as, as some of the continued challenges, you know, in, in the uh, area of uh, accommodations for uh, people in the deaf and hard of hearing community and, and maybe people um, in general are facing? Well, I think that one of the ongoing challenges is lack of awareness. We have a lot of different companies and employers that still don't know how to accommodate people. Or they don't understand that they need to provide accommodations. So it's it's just a continuing effort to educate companies on their responsibility under the law. And I think also, you know, we have... Uh, we have educated our communities and how to advocate for themselves. And that's, you know, we're constantly teaching children, you have a right to this and that, and this is how you ask for that particular accommodation. Um, and I think, too, you know, we're facing a little bit of a shortage of interpreters. Uh, we have interpreters who are retiring, and not as many new young interpreters coming into the field. So our commission here in Minnesota is creating a task force to focus on how to address that interpreter shortage issue. Other things related to accommodations, one thing that's been really positive technology is captioning. There are more people that are becoming aware of the benefits um, in the, of, of captioning. So that's been really wonderful. When I was growing up, you know, TV shows didn't have captioning. I just made up the story myself, you know, so then later on when captioning came on, I was like, that's not what I thought the program was about. <laughs> I think I like my story better. <laughs> but anyway, perhaps you should have been a screenwriter or you still could be on the side. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 fascinating. So, um, you know, what are some of the early ideas of, of how we can, uh, you know, combat the, the shortage of interpreters? Uh, what are some of the early ideas that you have? Well, obviously, we do need to recruit um, and promote the role of an interpreter to the younger generation. Um, you know, and how are we attracting people who might want to go into the field? One positive I do have to say is that now we, as you know, we have deaf kids that actually want to become interpreters. And do you remember during the pandemic, we had a deaf interpreter who was on TV, and the deaf kids were like, oh my gosh, how does that work? I want to become an interpreter too. So we still need to have hearing interpreters, of course, to, to do the feed of the information. Um, but there are doors that are opening, and we're becoming more creative in getting people to have access to communication. Ideas really, you know, I think it's important to promote ASL positively. Um, so not calling ASL an accommodation. ASL is really a language. Um, it has its own culture. ASL should not be viewed as... Um, Negative. So I want to make sure that that gets changed into a positive. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, 
<clears throat> I, I really agree with that paradigm. And, uh, you know, learning another language besides the one you speak, what, whatever that language is, just opens up your world uh, and gives you the ability to connect with a whole other, uh, you know, group, if you will, or just uh, individual human beings. Um, one question I have, are, are you seeing ASL uh, being offered as a, a a second language option? You know, like, you know, when we all went through school, you know, we might be required to take, you know, whatever it is of a, of a language. And, you know, so I chose Spanish. Are you seeing, and I don't recall growing up that, that uh, sign language was a option, you know, to learn. Are you seeing that offered more? readily now for for kids yes yes more and more it's being offered in high schools and college level as well as a second language option Mm -hmm. definitely more and more um that's another career option for deaf people is to become uh, asl teachers and you know we want somebody who is a native asl user of that language to be teaching that language that makes that makes sense um so so what else? You talked about some of the things that, that are working. What are some of the key things that you think are really working uh, uh, within um, the, the workforce community uh, for people that are deaf and hard of hearing? Well, I think that for my team, what's working is that they really work well together. Um, we have meetings to support each other. Um, I am always, as a manager, I'm always looking for training opportunities, of course, and looking for ways to lift up the team, if you will, and, um, you know, maybe um, look at different positions that they can move into. Uh, When I started, there were only two deaf people, um, and now we have six, so half of my team is deaf or hard of hearing. The other half is hearing. So as a manager, I'm really just promoting and making sure that people have opportunities to achieve. I know that some of the challenges within VR, you know, if you think about the people that we serve, we don't have enough providers that are out there who have an understanding of how to serve the population that we serve. We need more providers um, that are fluent in ASL who understand the impact of the workplace and deaf culture. And we are continuing to work. We work with amazing employers who have been willing to hire people uh, and using them to teach other businesses, uh, to show them, you know, to be a role model that it works well. Um, and I, that I think that... There's a, there's a concept called deaf can, and that's where you reflect the positive things about people who are deaf and what they bring to the table to the workplace. Um, in educational settings, we are visible. We are visual, excuse me, we are visual people. Um, and so changing that environment and removing those barriers we we bring something that hearing people can't see. Yeah, yeah, that makes <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense. Is is someone who works for a, a provider? I've I've thought that for for quite a while as well. That we need more um, professionals in the customized employment field that uh, that speak a- ASL 
uh, and, and can communicate uh, in that way to give more opportunities um, of, of places people can choose, you know, to use uh, customized employment services, you know, certainly. Uh, yeah. Um, well, you know, at, at this stage, as we start to kind of get towards winding down, you know, our conversation, you know, I always ask uh, our guests and, and thank you again for for joining us, uh, you know, here today. Um, you know, what are just big picture? What are some of your hopes and dreams, you know, for the future, for uh, for the deaf and hard of hearing community and for, you know, all people uh, with, with disabilities? You know, my dream and hope is that we can remove barriers, um, remove discrimination, make the world more accepting, accommodating, cohesive. Um, you know, everyone has a purpose. Everyone has an ability to do something. And, you know, I look back to my seventh grade history teacher, and he told me, keep your eyes on the stars. The ears are less important. And that was something that I've always held on to that really, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It, we all have a place. And I just really want to see opportunities continue to open up because I think we each have something to give. You give to the workplace. Um, yeah. yeah. It's amazing how uh, our teachers, we don't, we don't forget them. Uh, you know, like you, I remember, you know, some of those words of wisdoms, you know, that my, my teacher said to me along the way. And uh, so for all you teachers out there, uh, your work matters. Uh, it really does. Um, and uh, I, I'm also wondering if your history uh, teacher was a uh, Casey Kasem fan because uh, his, his, one of his big uh, taglines was, you know, keep reaching for the stars, keep your feet on the ground or something like that. So I bet he was listening to a lot of Top 40. I, I still listen to that, by the way, on Cool 108 on Saturday mornings. But anyway, uh, yeah, I can get behind uh, all of that, uh, Elise, your dreams and hopes for the future and you know, as I said to you when I first met you uh, this morning, I wish that I spoke your language, but I'm glad that we're able to have a way for you and I to communicate with one another and uh, you and I to communicate with all of our audience, uh, uh, deaf and hard of hearing audience and uh, audiences that, that aren't deaf, deaf and hard of hearing. But, uh, you know, when you when you learn those languages uh, of others, it just is so empowering and uh I'm hoping this might motivate me to learn a little more sign because I, I shared with you when you walked in, I was using and learning a little, you know, many years ago, but it's something that if you don't use on a regular basis, uh, you know, it's hard to keep up. But uh, so, yeah. So thank you so much, uh, you know, for being here with us today. Uh, again, everybody out there, this is uh, Elise Knopf. Uh, she's a rehabilitation area manager with DEED. Uh, you've had quite a story. Uh, uh, really loved hearing all about it. Do you have any any last words you might want to say before we sign off? I just really thank you for the opportunity for today. It was really nice to be able to share a little bit about my background. Um, and I love to meet people. I love to learn about different people's experiences and their journeys. Um, it's important to remember that everyone has their own struggle. 
and we have to have a lot more love and compassion in the world and support each other. Yeah, you said a mouthful there, that is for sure. Uh, uh, we really do. We really do need more of that. So so here's to, to all of us supporting each other a, a little better and, uh, you know, maybe maybe listening before we react. I think uh, the world has definitely become a very reactive uh, place. And, uh, you know, for all, all you out there listening, uh, this is me, your host, Chris Davies. I don't know if I ever said that. Uh, by the way, if you haven't caught it yet, I'm Chris Davies. Uh, with Minnesota APSI, and you know, thanks for joining us today and learning uh, along with me uh, so much about uh, Elise Knopf and her journey. And just want to remind everybody out there, and I know Elise will agree with this: if you believe it, you can achieve it.